The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture reading for this morning will be Judges 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you are to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmana were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmanah fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmanah, and he threw all of them, all of the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured the young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zamina, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamina already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmina, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zamina said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zamina, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, 
I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of the Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who is in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Bezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Zerubbabel, that is Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The word of the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the word. Father, you're good. Your word is good. Through it, show us your goodness. Attract us to that. Center our lives on that, on you and your glory. I pray that your word would serve as a double-edged sword this morning, both as a warning and a witness, warning us away from darkness and being a witness to us of the light that it aims to draw our hearts to, namely the light of your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name and by your spirit. Amen. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. Um, a little bit over a week ago, I was at home, and I walked past one of our bathrooms, and I noticed uh, that someone, likely a child, had used it. And I mean, like, used it, used it. You, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about right here. And they'd forgotten to flush. So I just simply flushed it and started to walk away, and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that the water was not spiraling downward, but was rising and so, like, I shut off the water as fast as possible. It wasn't fast enough. So as this toilet begins to overflow, I start yelling for Holly because I think that she is magical and she is going to somehow have a solution to the situation. By the time that she gets there, the water's not just overflowing in the bathroom. It's flowing out into the living room towards our white area rug. Why we have a white area rug with five children, I will never know, but we do. Holly manages to make an old disposable beach towel appear out of thin air so she can stem this contaminated tide, save the rug. Crisis averted. Or so we thought. Because then we noticed that the water level on the floor began to disappear rapidly, as if it were going somewhere. 
that's when we walk down into our basement to see it seeping through the floor and splattering on everything and anything. Shades, that experience is a good picture of what Judges 8 is like. So, last week, chapter 7, it looked like everything was going great. Like Gideon's story that we've been tracing for a couple of weeks now, it hit a high point as he trusted in the Lord, obeyed God. God granted him victory. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, it celebrates this high point in Gideon's life in the most perfect way. It says that Gideon was made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Like that's where we were left last week. It seemed like Gideon's story might actually defy the pattern we've seen in Judges of this downward spiral, even though maybe as we went through chapter 7, there were a few hints along the way that maybe something wasn't just quite right, but no big deal. We'll just flush those things down. And then we turn the page to chapter 8 to see that sin overflow. And from chapter eight on, it is going to seep through the floor of every chapter, splashing everywhere and getting all over everything. That's the lovely image that I want to give you for the rest of the book of Judges. Because what Judges is actually gonna portray to us is gonna be much worse. Like I'm basically saying, buckle up and grab your disposable beach towel shades. Things are about to get gross And everything that I've just said may make the title of today's sermon seem a little bit confusing. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you'll see that this sermon is entitled Steadfast Love, which is mentioned, you might have noticed that phrase, it's mentioned in the very last verse, verse 35, which makes us reflect on that theme throughout the entire chapter. It's kind of like the exclamation point at the end of the chapter. However, the description that I've just given to you of Judges 8 makes it seem like this is the least likely place we would learn anything at all about steadfast love. We're no longer on that upward trajectory from Judges 7. No, chapter 8 turns us downward and takes us into the depths of darkness. But shades, this morning I want to invite you to come with me into the gross depths of that darkness because I promise that is precisely where you will behold the bright light of steadfast love. Let's see that together. Read with me. Judges chapter 8, verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, that said to Gideon, what is this that you've done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. So we pick up right where we left off in chapter seven. And what we are actually seeing unfold right here is a result of Gideon's actions that were already beginning to look questionable. Remember just a second ago I said that as awesome as chapter seven seemed, there were a few hints along the way that something might be wrong. I'm primarily talking about three things, three hints from chapter seven that maybe all was not well. First, do you remember how God whittles down Gideon's army all the way down to 300 men? And he tells Gideon to send everybody else home? Well, Gideon obeys, kind of. In chapter 7 and verse 8, 
When God whittles his army down for the second time, we learn that he doesn't send the 9,700 soldiers home like God told him to. He sends them back to their tents. Almost like he's hanging on to them for maybe something he has personally planned. It's our first hint. Something's not quite right. Second, we know why God whittled the army down. It's a huge theme of chapter 7. God whittled the army down to show the Israelites the battle belongs to him. He's the one that will get the victory. He's the one who will get the glory. The battle belongs to Yahweh. But in chapter 7 and verse 18, when Gideon is giving instructions to his army, and they're going to go and they're going to shout this big battle cry. This is what he tells them to shout. For the Lord which a better translation would actually be belonging to the Lord. So it's not a phrase of dedication. It's a phrase of possession. The battle belongs to God. He tells them, shout, belonging to the Lord and belonging to Gideon. The battle belongs to the Lord and Gideon, as if he should get some of the credit as if this war against Midian isn't just about Yahweh's deliverance, it's about something more personal for Gideon that he feels participatory in. It's, it's, like, it's like what we're seeing Gideon do right here. It's like he's beginning to slide himself into the center of the story. The very place that God has said alone is his. Gideon's like, yeah, and me. It's our second hint. Something might be. Wrong. Third, God grants the victory. We saw he did that without any of Gideon's men ever having to swing a sword. God threw the Midianite camp into panic so that they fought against themselves. In chapter 8, you learn 120,000 of their soldiers die, only 15,000 left, and they are fleeing in retreat. But instead of celebrating Yahweh's victory right then, chapter 7 ends with Gideon calling out all his troops. All the troops that he had sent back to their tents, kept close, perhaps for some personal purpose, he calls them out, and not just them. He sends messengers throughout the land, calls on other tribes, tribes like Ephraim, to help him pursue and put an end to Midian. The Lord never told him to pursue such action. In fact, I would argue that if he obeyed God's explicit instructions, send the other soldiers home, that pursuit would have never even been possible. This pursuit very much looks like Gideon's plan. These three hints that something is wrong, they seem to be showing us what it is that's wrong. Gideon's got his own plan for his own purposes. I'm going to keep my soldiers around because part of the battle belongs to me. And I'm going to pursue that. Seems like Gideon is pursuing his own plan for his own purposes. And I believe that that is confirmed by the fact that God disappears from Gideon's story. It's all over chapter 6 and 7. He does nothing in chapter 8. God is absent. Yeah, his name's going to show up. His name will occasionally get invoked, but we are never told again in Gideon's story that God speaks or acts. Gideon 
who we were told in chapter 6 was, was once clothed in God's spirit. He seems now to be clothing himself in his own strength for his own purpose. What purpose is that? We'll only see that as we continue to read. As we continue to read about Gideon's response to God's steadfast love. That's, that's what we're seeing, Shades. Like all throughout chapter six and seven, that's what God has been showing to Gideon, his steadfast love. And chapter eight is how Gideon responds. What do I mean, steadfast love? The English Standard Version, which is the version that I'm preaching out of, that's how it translates the Hebrew word chesed. Got to get the phlegm going. Chesed. Hebrew's fun. It's very romantic sounding language. It's a word, hesed, it's a word that is commonly used to describe God's covenant relationship with his people. Covenant. Covenant is kind of like a, a contract. It's a legally binding commitment. But it's more than that. It's more than a contract because a covenant is rooted in a real relationship, most often a real relationship of love. The, the greatest thing that we have to compare this to for our understanding is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's a legally binding commitment. You gotta go to court to get out of this thing. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than a mere contract because it's a commitment rooted in love. This is why hesed is never translated with just a single word like love because it's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. It's committed, unfailing, binding, steadfast love. And this is what God has been showing to Gideon and to us, by the way, as we've walked through the truths that we've seen throughout Judges 6 and 7. What truths did we see? Did we not see that God reveals that his presence is with us even when it seems like he's not? Did we not see that God reveals that his power is for us even when it seems like it's not? He's with us He's for us. He's a God of committed, unfailing, faithful, steadfast love. Now, how will we respond? How does Gideon respond? Like once Gideon has got what he needed from God, what he wanted from God. Remember what Gideon wanted? I want your presence and I want your power because that's what I need in order to throw off this Midianite yoke of oppression that my people have been under for seven years. I need to get rid of that suffering. So I need your power. I need your presence to get rid of that. And once Gideon got that, he didn't celebrate it. He didn't celebrate God's victory. He didn't celebrate God's glory. No, he pursues further his own victory for his own glory. Judges chapter 8 should read like Judges chapter 5. Do you remember Judges 5? That comes on the heels of Deborah and Barak defeating and delivering, defeating God's enemies and delivering God's people. And what's Judges 5? The whole thing is a song. It's Deborah's song as she celebrates God, his victory. His glory, Gideon's story, should be making that move. God's been victorious. Let's celebrate God's glory. And instead, Gideon's story makes the move for him to pursue his own glory. 
He calls out these other men, these other tribes, including the tribe of Ephraim, to help him with what remained of Midian. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, we see the Ephraimites are upset about this late call to battle. They want to know, why were we just called out in order to do like cleanup? Why weren't we called out for like the main battle? In other words, they feel like Gideon has been unfaithful to them in order to keep the glory of victory all to himself. Clearly, clearly what Gideon is going to tell them is, y'all, this wasn't about me keeping glory for myself. It's not about my glory. It's not about your glory. God actually reduced the forces, wouldn't let me call you out because this is all about his glory. That's why I didn't call you out. That's what Gideon's going to say, right? No such luck. Verse 2, Gideon said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? That's, that's Gideon's clan. Basically, he's saying, look, your, your tribe's table scraps, the gleaning of leftover grapes off the field, your table scraps, that's better than any feast we could ever produce, our entire grape harvest, man. In other words, Gideon's saying, your tribe is bigger, better, and more glorious in every way, even in this fight. Because Gideon goes on to say, God let you capture two Midianite princes. He didn't let me do that. Y'all got to do that. In other words, Gideon's basically saying, Ephraim, if it feels like I have been unfaithful to you, that's no big deal because you get more glory than me. He doesn't deny that he gets glory. He says, it's not a big deal. Minimize my unfaithfulness because you get more glory than me. And I'm just like, what? Like, what kind of response is that? Gideon has every opportunity to put God and his glory at the center of this story, and he doesn't. What does he do? He slides himself to the center. It's about him, his glory, and it's about him and saving his own skin. Instead of taking this opportunity to highlight God's faithfulness, he minimizes his unfaithfulness so that he can keep pursuing his own purposes. Even slapping God's name on his plan. Did you see that? Verse 3, Gideon tells the Ephraimites, God gave these two Midianite princes into your hand. But as far as we can tell, Shades, this was never a part of God's plan to go and pursue Midian further, to capture these Midianite princes. Like, like why is Gideon responding to God's steadfast love in this way by pursuing his own plans for his own purposes and slapping God's name on it to justify it. Yahweh's won the battle. Why doesn't Gideon celebrate it? To see why, we've got to keep going. Verse four. And Gideon came to the Jordan. This would be the way that Midian was trying to flee crossed the Jordan into the desert. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted. That don't matter. Gideon's got a plan. Exhausted and yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sakoth, please give me loaves of bread. Give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. 
for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Well, Gideon's going to get more glory for himself than even Ephraim did. They might have got two princes. He's after two kings. Gideon keeps going because he wants to capture these kings. We still don't know why. But he arrives at the city of Sakoth and he asks them for some help, and they're not very eager. Look at verse 6. The officials of Sakoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? In other words, let's wait and see who wins this thing. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Set this next to the scene that we just saw with Ephraim. Gideon has just minimized his apparent unfaithfulness to Ephraim. But now he maximizes Sakoth's apparent unfaithfulness to Verse 8 shows that he does the exact same thing with the next town that doesn't want to help him, Penuel. He's like, y'all aren't going to help me either? All right, you see your defensive tower? When I get back, tearing that bad boy down to the ground. Gideon is doing right here what one of my kiddos does. Uh, this child shall go unnamed, but her initials are Talitha May Hafes. Uh, Talitha is constantly guilty of taking other people in our house's things. Uh, she'll take them, she'll use them, and then she'll just leave them wherever she likes. And if you confront her about it, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. It's right here. I mean, what's the, why are you so upset? However, if you ever touch Talitha's stuff, like even if you are her loving mother, who while she is away at school, goes and cleans her hurricane mess of a room. Like you're not even taking her stuff. You're just making it neat. If you do that, if you touch Talitha's stuff, get ready to be flailed with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Like this is the double standard that we're seeing with Gideon because he is putting himself, not God, in the center of the story. When he's perceived as unfaithful, it's no big deal. But if he perceives others as unfaithful, to him, it's time to flail somebody's flesh because he's at the center of the story and everybody needs to get on board with his plan and his purposes. After all, he's been called by God. Did you notice that? Did you notice Gideon uses God's name to justify what he's doing? Look, look, look back at verse seven. When the Lord, Yahweh, has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand. Like, like whatever Gideon's personal purposes are right here in this plan he's concocted, he tries to justify those purposes by invoking the name of the Lord. But as far as we know, the Lord has not told him to pursue these kings. In fact, everything we've seen seems to indicate the opposite. It seems like Gideon is using his calling to justify his personal plans 
and manipulate others into helping him pursue them. I think that is precisely what we see when we keep reading. Gideon catches up with these kings. He attacks them by surprise, defeats their army. Verse 12 says, he, look at it, he, that's Gideon, threw all the army into a panic. The word panic comes from the root of the Hebrew word harad, which means to tremble. I mention that for two reasons. This sentence right here, we've encountered sentences like this before throughout Judges. But none of God's judges or deliverers have ever been the subject. God always has been. God's the one who throws armies into panic. God's the one before whom others tremble. But right here, it seems that God is gone and Gideon has put himself in his place. He's throwing armies into panic. He's making them tremble. He captures these two kings and then, like almost immediately, verse 14, we're told he captures another person. Same Hebrew word. Captures the kings and he captures a young man from Sukkoth, that city that had been unfaithful to him and offended him. Same word, captured Midianites, captured a fellow Israelite. Do do you see what's happening? Gideon is treating fellow Israelites the same way he treats Midianites. He's he's treating Zakoth like they are enemies of Yahweh, when in reality, they're just enemies of him. Do you see? Do you see? Once again, Gideon's putting himself in Yahweh's place. You're unfaithful. You're my enemy. You must be Yahweh's enemy too. He's putting himself in Yahweh's place. He's putting himself at the center of the story. So he captures this young man and forces him to give him all the names of the officials who offended him back in Sukkoth. So he can go back there and make good on his threat to flail their flesh with thorns. And he does. Things get even worse when he goes to that second city of Penuel, that city where he promised, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tear your defensive tower down to the ground. He does that. Verse 17 says, he also killed the men of the city. Shades, I'm just left asking, why? Why has this been Gideon's response to the steadfast love that he's been shown by God. I think, I think verses 18 to 21 finally help us see the reason, the purpose behind Gideon's plan. Look at verse 18. Then Gideon said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? This question is confusing for two reasons. One, it's referencing an event we know nothing about, something that likely happened in the past. Remember, the Midianites had been oppressing Gideon's people for seven years. He is likely referencing something that happened in the past where these kings were responsible for the death of some men at Tabor. This question is still confusing for a second reason. He asked, where are the men you killed at Tabor? Like, they're dead, duh. It's a sarcastic question. It's kind of like if a parent uh, knows their child stole a cookie off the counter, like you know it, and you ask your kid, where's the cookie? Like, you just want to make them say it. 
You want them to have to confess. And Gideon wants these kings to confess with their own mouths. Something. He wants them to confess about this this murder that they did in the past that, that, that somehow must be personal to Gideon? Keep reading. They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. They looked like you. They acted like you. Almost like you could be family. 19, Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Ah, there it is. There's why Gideon keeps going. This is why he keeps pursuing. Why he kept 9,700 soldiers around, called out some extra forces. He wants to kill the kings who killed his brothers. Do you see, this is no longer a story about God's deliverance. It's a story about Gideon's vengeance. Gideon has responded to God's steadfast love almost like that was an affirmation that he was supposed to be at the center of the story. He's responded to God's steadfast love by sliding himself into the center and making this all about him, what he wants, his pursuit, his glory. Like, God, thank you and all for your deliverance from Midian. Thanks for that bit of salvation, the whole thing with the 300. I know how things should go from here. Is is this not how people respond to God's steadfast love all throughout the book of Judges? Have we not seen this story on repeat like a broken record? The people of God will cry out amidst suffering. God responds with salvation, and then they go right back to putting themselves at the center of the story. Aren't you glad, Shades, that we never respond to God's steadfast love like this? Shades. Don't forget, the book of Judges is a warning. It's a warning of what our hearts are like and how often are our hearts just like Gideon's. My heart is. Like, how often do our hearts respond to God's steadfast love by putting ourselves at the center of the story. How often do our hearts slap God's name on the pursuit of our own glory? Is that not what we've seen Gideon do time and time again? He did it with Ephraim, slapped God's name on what he was doing there. He did it with Sakoth and with Penuel, slapped God's name on what he was doing there. He does it right here with Zeba and Zalmunna, slaps God's name on what he's doing here. Look at it in verse 19. He sanctions their deaths with this phrase, as the Lord lives. Shades. We've got to see this. See, see this. God shows steadfast love to Gideon by calling him to participate in his deliverance. And Gideon then uses that calling to justify his personal vengeance. 
his personal plans, for his personal glory. Shades, God has shown steadfast love to us by calling us to participate in his deliverance through Jesus Christ. Commissions us out, just like Gideon, into a spiritual war that is to be fought not in our might, but to be clothed in the spirit of God and fought in such a way as if we were only an army of 300 so everyone knows that God gets the glory. God has called us to participate in his deliverance that he is working through Jesus Christ. And how often do we use that calling to justify pursuing our own purposes in life? How often, in other words, do do we invoke the name of God to pursue what we want? How often do we invoke the name of God to baptize the platform of our political party? Pursue what I want. How often do we utter phrases when we know they're not true? Like, well, this is where the Lord is leading me. That's the trump card I can play on any correction anybody brings into my life. This is is where God is calling me. How often do we slap his name on stories of our own glory? You ever see a Christian leader do this? Like Gideon, think there's some special application here for Christian leaders. Like, you ever, you ever heard a story or maybe, I don't know, listen to a podcast about a pastor, a preacher, author, a leader called of God who uses that calling to justify pursuing their own glory? Put themselves in God's place where if anyone is unfaithful to them, that's equated with being unfaithful to God. And if they're ever unfaithful, that unfaithfulness is minimized. And they live their lives instead of God using them for his glory, they use God to pursue their own. I mean, they'd never say it that way. We wouldn't either. If we were doing that, We wouldn't say it that way. We know the right things to say to make it seem like we're all about God's glory. So does Gideon. He knows the right things to say in this scenario. We see that in verse 22. So after he kills these kings, he takes the symbols of their kingship, these crescents that were worn on the necks of their camels. He takes those for his own, and look what all of his actions have added up to. Look at how the people around him react to him. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also. Why? For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Through Gideon's actions, these people have understood This is a story about Gideon's glory. He saved them. The battle belonged to him. He conquered the enemy. He claimed the symbols of kingship. They see all of his actions, and in their eyes, it makes Gideon a mighty man of valor. Curious. It was the exact opposite characteristics about Gideon that made him a mighty man of valor in God's eyes when Gideon was weak and trembling, 
God said, here's a mighty man of valor that I can use to display my might. Now we're on the opposite end of the spectrum, seeing the world standard of what makes someone mighty. So they moved to make Gideon king, establish a Gideon family dynasty. And we expect, from everything we've seen, for Gideon to accept. But check out how he responds. He knows the right thing to say. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord, Yahweh, will rule over you. Could this be a moment of redemption for Gideon? Like perhaps the people requesting for him to be king is like a wake-up call. Perhaps it convicts his, his heart. Perhaps it makes him recall the word of God back from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God tells his people that indeed they one day will have a king and he lays out what that kingship is supposed to look like and the very first thing is the people won't select the king. God will. Perhaps that scripture comes to mind and it's convicting Gideon. Perhaps we're seeing Gideon put God back at the center of the story. The Lord will rule over you. I wish that were the case. But while Gideon knows the right thing to say, he says one thing and he does another. I've got to summarize some of this. We don't have time to read through it all. But if you read through verses 24 to 32, Gideon's actions that unfold mirror the actions of Canaanite kings. He's setting himself up to look just like a king that you would observe in any of the nations that surrounded them. A king that looks the exact opposite of God's instructions in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, God said the king can't amass for himself a lot of gold. He can't amass for himself many wives. He cannot lead the people into idolatry. He must be faithful to Yahweh always. Gideon goes in the exact opposite direction. First thing he does is amass a royal treasury. Gets everybody to donate some gold, 43 pounds worth. It's in direct opposition to God's instruction in Deuteronomy 17. Then he uses that gold to make an ephod. An ephod was part of the priestly garment. It's kind of like this breastplate that goes over your robe, if you will. It was this thing that the priest, the high priest at the tabernacle would wear when he would go before the Lord to represent the people. Gideon makes one for himself as if to tell the people they need to continue to come to him for divine direction. Doesn't put it where the tabernacle sits. He puts it in his own hometown. His hometown where he once destroyed a shrine to Baal. He's now building a new shrine, leading the people straight into idolatry. They actually end up worshiping this ephod itself. It becomes a snare to them and a snare to Gideon. This is in direct opposition to God's instructions for a king in Deuteronomy 17. Not only that, you keep reading, you learn that Gideon takes a harem of wives and concubines. He has 70 sons. That's likely a symbolic number that mirrors how many sons the Canaanite god El was said to have with the goddess Asherah. In other words, it was symbolic of a complete royal family sanctioned by these pagan gods. 
One of his sons, we learn as you read, he names Abimelech. And this is just the cherry on top. Do you know what the name Abimelech means? My father is king. Like Gideon may have said, the Lord will rule over you. But with his actions, he is declaring himself as king. His actions betray the reality that this story, it's all about Gideon. It's all about Gideon's glory. And shades, we can do the same thing. We can say all the right things. We can have correct theology and still live lives that are centered on our own glory. Like we can have the right answer on our lips while contradicting it with our lives. Pastors do this all the time. This is the sad reality of my vocation. The, the, the sad reality of my vocation is that pastors preach that everything is about God's glory, but then lead their churches to be all about their own. If I ever do that, fire me. Don't let me or any other pastor fashion a golden ephod that makes that pastor your conduit to God so that you end up glorifying them instead of him. Shades. I pray that I as your pastor and that we as a people do not respond to God's steadfast love in this way by saying everything is all about him while making it all about us. That, no matter what we say, will lead us away from the Lord. Doesn't matter how much we claim he is king. That's precisely what we see in Judges 8, 27. Look at it. Gideon made an ephod and he put it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Gideon could claim God was king all he wanted to, but his actions led the people away from that reality. Doesn't matter what he said. And it even got worse after he died because he had put the people on a trajectory to be all about their own glory. Look at verse 33. Look at how the chapter ends. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love. Chesed. They didn't show steadfast love to the family of Jerubel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. He had done some good. That's why he ends up in Hebrews 11. And I am so thankful. So thankful there's room for Gideon in Hebrews 11. It means there's room for me. But what we read right here is about the trajectory that he put the people on. The people did not show steadfast love, covenant love, to God or to Gideon. They made a covenant with another God. Bel Barit. The Hebrew word Barit, you know what that is? It's the word covenant. Literally, Baal of the covenant. It's almost like the people are saying, Yahweh who? 
Like we're told, they didn't remember Yahweh. It means they didn't recognize that he was the one who had delivered them. They'd moved on from that story to pursue their own purposes for their own glory. And they were going to pursue that through Baal and all that he had to offer. Baal's a god of fertility. He's going to give you crops and kids and cattle. Basically, in an agricultural society, he's going to give you prosperity. He's going to make things about your glory. The people don't care what God has done for them or what Gideon had done for them. They abandoned steadfast love. Shades, this is the depths of darkness in Judges 8. And it is only going to get worse. It's going to get gross as it seeps into everything that follows after this. But, goodness, that's a glorious gospel conjunction. But, Shades, it is here, precisely here, in the depths of the darkness, where we see there is only one bright light that that darkness cannot conquer. What, do you remember what we've called this series as a whole? When all other lights go out. That's... That's where we are, Shades, at the end of Judges 8. And right here, when all other lights go out, when even the light of covenant love seems to be extinguished, it is here, precisely here, that we see it's only extinguished on one side, ours. The word hesed, covenant love, it's only used twice in the entire book of Judges. Right here, And all the way back in chapter 1 in verse 24. And both times it is highlighting how we abandon steadfast love. But that is so that we might see all the more God doesn't. He does not abandon his steadfast love. We might be covenant breakers, but God is a covenant keeper. And his steadfast love shines forth in unconquerable light precisely amidst the dark. I skipped over verse 28. Let's go back to it. We see there God's covenant love shining bright amidst the dark. It says, so Midian was subdued. Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And Midian raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Midian was subdued. By who? That verb's passive. In other words, nobody in this sentence is doing it. It's happening for them. It's what scholars call a divine passive. Midian was subdued. Not by the people of Israel, not by Gideon, not by anyone in this sentence, They were subdued by God. Get this, Shades. Get this. For 40 years, that's the equivalent of the Bible. That's that's the way the Bible says for an entire generation. For, For 40 years, while the people whore out their worship to an ephod, while they abandon their covenant to Yahweh to make a covenant with Baal. For 40 years, while they are caught in that snare, God gives the land rest. God faithfully keeps Midian at bay. While his people forget him, he forgets not them. 
While they abandon steadfast love, he displays it. Do you see it shining bright? The darkness right here only makes it shine all the brighter. The same is true in our lives, Shades. Romans 5, it was read to us earlier in the assurance of pardon. Romans 5 and verse 6. For while we were weak, meaning while we were slaves to sin, caught up in the darkest of the darkness we have ever experienced. While we were weak at the right time, that's precisely the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for you amidst all your muck. Verse eight, God shows his love, puts it on bright display. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners in the depths of darkness, Christ died for us. God's steadfast love shines bright precisely amidst our dark, for he came into our darkness shades as a greater Gideon, a greater savior, Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, so he could keep both sides of the covenant, God's and ours. As God, he could show us perfect steadfast love. And as man, he did what Gideon could never do and what none of us could ever do. He perfectly showed steadfast love to God. And through faith in him, his covenant keeping counts as ours. What glorious kind of gospel exchange is that? My covenant breaking and the death that it deserved, the forsaking it deserved, that's taken by him on the cross where he conquers it all. Shades, how, how will we respond to such steadfast love? Like Gideon? Thanks God for your grace. I'm gonna make the rest of my life, rest of my story, about my glory. We know where that leads. Judges 8 has shown us that leads to darkness and death. No, the, the steadfast love of Jesus is aimed at saving us from precisely that. It's aimed at saving us from the death that comes from seeking our own glory. It saves us from that and fills us with the life that comes from seeking his we are saved from a story where we're trapped in being centered on ourselves. Saved to a story where we are centered on God's glory. Isn't that what God told Gideon he was doing right at the beginning when he called Gideon to fight Midian? Gideon, Midian, it's getting fun with that, isn't it? Isn't this why God whittled down Gideon's army to next to nothing? So that they would know they didn't win the battle. It wasn't about their glory. It was about God's. Didn't he save them from being centered on themselves? Save them in such a way to free them from the death of being centered on self so that they might find life in centering on him. Shades, this is what it means to be saved. That, that God, in his steadfast love, has saved you from a life of less to give you the best. And the best is himself. That this is the most loving thing that God can do. Is, is to center you on his glory. 
the only thing that can fill you, satisfy every longing. This is the story that his steadfast love invites us into. Shades, how will you respond? I pray. I pray that going into the depths of Judges 8 darkness helps us to see and embrace the bright light of Yahweh's steadfast love.